0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent appearance on the Partnering Leadership Podcast, where I talk about my book, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership.
1: Jonathan Westover, welcome to the Partnering Leadership Podcast.
0: Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today.
1: I am thrilled to have you because I love your book, Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership. And I was mentioning to you, Human Capital Innovations Podcast has become one of my favorites. So I'm binge listening to them. Absolutely love it. Now, Jonathan, whereabouts did you grow up? And how did your upbringing impact the kind of leader and person you've become?
0: Yeah, interesting question. So I I moved around a bit um, in my childhood. I I was born in Columbus, Ohio. And then when I was about five, my family moved to Salem, Oregon, where I spent most of my time in school. Um, After my junior year of high school, my family then moved to rural northwest Missouri, a little town called Hamilton, Um, And that's where I graduated from high school. I I went to a year of college um, there. uh, And then eventually I ended up transferring uh, and then ending up out in Utah where I did all of my uh, degrees in in grad school. Uh, And then I've been here ever since for the last 20 years. uh, And, you know, I'm a professor now at the university here. Um, So moving around a bit as a kid um, and being in very different types of places, uh, I don't know, it, it taught me uh, the importance of, of difference. So e- even though I didn't experience as much difference as perhaps uh, a lot of individuals would when you're in a uh, heavily diverse population, um, just going through those, those transitions of seeing culture difference across um, different uh, places I think was pretty impactful uh, to me. Just realizing, even at a young age, that there's not actually a right way to do things. Um, there's lots of different ways and lots of different perspectives. And I remember, you know, from very early on, um, kind of being tuned into that. So I, I attribute a lot of that just to the fact that we moved a bit. Um, and and then eventually, I, I ended up uh, after Missouri before transferring. Um, in university out to Utah. I spent a couple of years living in South Korea and that really opened my eyes, um, to, to the world and understanding that there's a lot of things I had no clue about. Um, I had, you know, a narrow perspective on things and all of a sudden, uh, that became more expansive. And, and I feel like that really set the foundation for moving forward in life, um, professionally in terms of, uh, my personal life, my family and, uh, know all of that you know we're we're, we're all this big amalgamation of all these experiences and they they definitely set us on a trajectory and I come from a you know a a relatively poor family I I never knew it at the time uh, but I suspect we were pretty much always below the poverty line um, when I was growing up Uh, but you know I was safe I had a I had loving parents And they were well educated. So even though we were poor, I always knew that I would um, be taken care of. And I always, I I never questioned whether or not I would go to college and seek advanced degrees and things like that. And that then set me on a a trajectory um, to do a lot of really cool things um, to travel the world, to teach uh, both. A variety of different universities, but also consult in a, a wide range of organizations. And, you know, I, I, I have to thank my parents for that. They instilled in me very early on the value of education, the value of critical thinking, um, the value of, of challenging the status quo. I, I, that's, uh, that's something that I definitely learned from my father. Um, and I think it's, it's uh, served me well. Sometimes, Sometimes I'm a bit of the, the thorn in the side of, of people and organizations, but I, I figure that's uh, healthy to a certain extent.
1: Being a thorn in the side to make positive happen in the world is always a good thing. (laughs) And it also shows in your writing that the diverse experience that you have had has uh, gotten you to appreciate the beauty in the different cultures. One of the things I love in your book is that you have these words from different languages and their meaning, for example, FICA, a Swedish coffee break, where there is an element of connection, Um, Ubuntu from Zulu, uh, uh, talking about the connection and compassion in humanity. So I wonder, what were you trying to convey in your book with including these words from different languages connecting to humanity?
0: Yeah, and that's really it. Um, So so in, in my book, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, there are 15 chapters and interspersed Uh, between chapters, I have little kind of management and leadership nuggets, um, just a paragraph um, on kind of related topics that bridge between chapters. And then I also um, insert these words um, from this this vocabulary from cultures and countries around the world. Um, there's There's a section of my book all about inclusive leadership. and even though it's a section, I really feel like it's important for that to be a foundation uh, for everything that we do as leaders. And, and I, I think that probably I, at least I hope that plays out in the way it reads, even, you know, even in other chapters outside of that section that throughout you get that feeling that, that, you know, this is really essential that we open our minds, that we rely and lean on other people um, in their understanding. And over time, you know, as I've Encountered different cultures and worked and lived in different countries, you know, these different um, vocabulary words or proverbs, um, they've stuck out to me. I don't know if it's a function of me living and working in South Korea, you know, as a young adult where I was learning the Korean language, but I just really learned to love language and the deep cultural meaning that's embedded in a lot of this language that frankly, I took you know, for granted, English is my first language. I never even thought of language that way until I started to experience different cultures and realizing the richness there. So my hope is that just these little nuggets of, of exposure to, to these different um, cultures and languages, each of which I think have deep meaning that contribute to the overall tone of the book and kind of the the pacing and the trajectory, you know, of our individual personalized journey to discover our own leadership. Um, you know, that's that's why I included them. And and hopefully it will aid in self-reflection. And as we, as we try to consider how, how we can better implement, you know, some of those ordinary everyday practices that will lead to extraordinary results, as is the uh, subtitle to the book.
1: Each of them, Jonathan, are a beautiful dot with its own meaning, but standing back and seeing all of them is a story of what you're trying to convey, which I really appreciated. Now, you also chose the word alchemy. What does alchemy mean?
0: Yeah, so well, let me start with a little bit of, of background. So, you know, as I was putting this book together, uh, I'm an academic. I, I teach at the university. I do a lot of academic research. Uh, I, I moat like 99% of everything I've written up to this point in my career has been scholarly, academic in nature. Um, so journal articles, academic books, things of that nature. And then about a year ago or so, maybe a year and a half ago, I decided I, I really should start to try to translate this into kind of everyday parlance, um, not research dense language. like So a- anyone could pick up and get nuggets and ideas and figure out ways that they can implement and improve their life. So that was the the main motivation uh, behind this book. So over the last year and a half, as I've started to to write for different outlets like Forbes and various magazines at hr.com and and places like that, um, I started to refine my thinking around how do I convey these messages and this research that I've done over decades so that it can reach the end of the row. It can, and it can really speak to everyday individuals and leaders in, in a variety of organizations. Um, so that was the, the main purpose, the main goal. Uh, and it was a bit of a challenge just cause I'm so used to writing academic research. Um, and, and it was a lot of fun to try to figure that out. So I actually, I had the book written before the title was set. Um, this happens sometimes, right. And, uh, I, I'm always jealous of people who can like figure out like the, a title and then write for the title, but that wasn't what I did. I, I wrote the book. I had it all pretty much set and in place and I was, and I was toying around with a whole bunch of different iterations, different types of uh, approaches to the title, um, each of which had kind of the same core components, but I, I just couldn't. I was wrestling with that word. Uh, what to, to what to put there. That was like the last piece. I, I just couldn't figure out what I wanted to put there. Uh, and finally, I, I, I settled on alchemy because I really just like the nature of the word as it relates to change uh, and turning something that's a value, but making it even more precious. And the word alchemy refers to this medieval practice. It's kind of a pseudo philosophical scientific kind of an approach where, where, uh, and, and a kind of a spiritual approach that, um, individuals would use to try to take base components and turn them into precious metals. That's that kind of the core meaning. And then as, since then, of course, we, we've, you know, use the word figuratively all the time. And ultimately that's what I'm doing. I'm not changing anything into gold, of course, but I want, um, I want everyone who has a chance to read the book to recognize the potential within and go through the process of self-reflection and goal setting and self-discovery, to where they can take something that's already precious Uh, And through mindfulness and spiritual practice and self-reflection and uh, application and refinement over time, they can turn it into something uh, even more valuable. Um, They're truly remarkable leadership. So ultimately, that's why I settled on the word. And I I feel like there's kind of this magical spiritual component to it that I think is valuable.
1: And you also counterbalance that with a great subtitle, Ordinary Everyday Actions that produce extraordinary results. In a day and age where everyone's looking for the hacks and quick fixes, you are not promising hacks and quick fixes.
0: No, um, we all know those don't work. <laughs> so they, they sell books um, because people are so anxious to find the quick fix, but they always leave you empty uh, because there's just no substitute for the hard work uh, the consistent, sustainable effort over time um, to refine ourselves and refine our character uh, and refine our, our various capacities. And leadership's no different. We all have leadership potential. Uh, I, I don't believe in the born leader. Um, I, and I think there's a lot of research to back that up. But we all have um, leadership potential. And some of us have natural abilities that we often Uh, relate to leadership or different aspects of leadership, but that's not the same thing as saying, you know, there's born leaders and there's people that aren't born and they're just followers. We all can and should develop leadership capacities and capabilities, and we can lead and drive change within our homes, within our communities, within our organizations, society as a whole. And, and so, yeah, I chose that subtitle because I don't think there's any quick quick fix. I don't think there's anything, even though I use the word alchemy, I don't think there's actually anything magical about how you all of a sudden become a great leader. It's through the tried and true principles exercised over time uh, where you will start to stretch and grow and learn of your potential and expand yourself into it. the other reason I I use the main title and subtitle the way I did, and really the way the book is structured, um, that perhaps is a little bit different than a lot of you know the thousands and thousands of leadership books that are out there, is that I I want people to discover their own personal alchemy. Uh, I don't believe there's prescriptive one size fits all approach to being a, an ex- a successful leader. Some people have tremendous success as you know that charismatic leader. Uh, others are kind of the quiet um, type of powerful leader. Uh, and you, you have every kind of uh, different variation of personality type and skill set. There's no one right way. And a lot of leadership books tend to promote kind of a recipe for leadership. And I just don't believe in that. Um, but I do believe as we do the work, we can discover our own uh, components, right? Our own Uh, ingredients uh, that go into our unique recipe. And then we can start to leverage that and build upon it um, so that we can be true to ourselves and be authentic in our leadership approach with those around us.
1: Which is actually one of the other things I appreciated about the book is that every section ends with self-reflection questions for leaders. So we reflect on ourselves and our own journey in learning from what you're sharing in the book. Now, I want to touch on a couple of the chapters you have in the book. One of them, uh, uh, Helping Others Become Bluer Than Indigo. What is that all about?
0: Yeah. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, I spent a, uh, about two and a half years in South Korea and learning the language, learning the culture. Um, one of the things I really tapped into really early on were a lot of these um, Eastern proverbs. Um, and and idioms. Uh, this is one of those idioms and it, it derives from Confucius and Buddhist teaching. Uh, you, th- you think about indigo, the color indigo. Now that's not a word we use often to describe color in everyday, our everyday language you know, in, in the US, um, but it, it's a deep, vibrant blue. Uh, it's, it's what many would describe as the, the bluest of blues. Okay. So think now with an Eastern mindset for a second and the, the, the amount of deference they give to, um, those who are senior, those who are, um, leaders and teachers, those who are in positions of authority. And this teaching is that unlike what is often common in leadership where it's ego driven, it's, it's about me and it's about what I accomplish through my people. And, uh, and then I leverage that right to move on to the next rung or whatever. The whole idea from this Eastern philosophy is that if I am a true leader, if I'm a true teacher, then my entire goal in everything that I do is to help others to become bluer than indigo or, or deeper, more vibrant blue than I am. Okay. So if I consider myself indigo, I want everyone on my team to become bluer than indigo. That means I'm going to invest in them. Uh, I'm going to empower them. I'm going to lean on them and give them stretch opportunities and allow them to grow into their own capacity and capabilities. Uh, it's a fundamentally different approach um, to, to leadership than I think what we often hear in the, kind of the dominant portrayal of leadership in our culture here in the U.S. Uh, so it's something that resonated with me immediately. Um, I, I probably learned that, that uh, idiom you know, within the first couple months of being in country. And, you know, that was over 20 years ago. So I, you know, it's, it's always stuck with me and I believe it's essential um, as we try to understand our connection with those around us in uh, fulfilling our leadership. Our own leadership potential is fulfilled as we develop those around us.
1: And Jonathan, that's what I was wondering about when we think about the Elon Musks of the world and the stories that are told and the narratives we hear, they run slightly different than the helping others become bluer than indigo. So are they the exceptions and this is the rule? Or what would you think about the narratives we typically hear about uh, leadership success versus leaders that help their team members become better than themselves.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. And and I would point out too that, again, there's no recipe, like there's no one size fits all. So you have an Elon Musk uh, type of uh, leader and he's very unique, Um, but he is kind of that diamond in the rough one in a million type of leader, right? Um, And frankly, most of us aren't like that. Uh, we, we don't have that capacity um, to to be successful that way. If you're one of the rare few that does, by all means, um, go accomplish great things and, and run with it. Uh, but I think in life for the, the vast majority of people, um, what we encounter as we interact with those around us and we interact with organizations, imperfect organizations, um, is that uh, it's, it's, it's that kind of selfless uh, approach towards a, another thing I talk about early on, I think it's chapter one actually, is servant leadership and this, this approach towards um, a commitment um, in your leadership approach uh, towards serving and leading others and developing them, um, which then feeds into bluer than indigo and, and you want them to become even greater than you are. I my in my experience, um, it's those types of leaders that develop greater trust and commitment among their people and have the long term sustainable types of success that we want to see in organizations. Not the flash in the pan kind of um, uh, uh, success, but but honestly, um, that consistency that is required. Uh, in most different walks of life. Um, and even in Elon Musk's companies, he needs a lot of those types of leaders to work with him. So if they were all Elon Musk's, it wouldn't work. Um, but when you have someone like him, coupled with and complemented by other um, leaders with different styles and those that can see the value in investing in their people and developing them, um, that's, that's when you start to see the magic and and really have some uh, tremendous outcomes. What I'm really nervous about, and what often is portrayed in the media, in popular press, and in books a lot that you know a lot of different leadership books they they convey this idea that like Elon the Elon Musk's of the world is how everyone should try to be, and I just I don't think that's even remotely possible. Um, not only because we're not Elon Musk, you know, and and he, he's he's such a unique individual. Uh, but organizations, if that's all we have in le- various leadership positions across the hierarchy of organizations, organizations won't be successful. I'm, I'm pretty confident of that. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and so much research goes into me saying that, even though we don't have the time to go into, to, you know, all the nuts and bolts behind why I'm, I'm suggesting that. But uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think a servant... Leader type of a mindset and a development mindset of helping those around you, um, as Bluer than Indigo suggests, I think that's uh, a winning combination that will help a lot of people find success.
1: I am so with you, Jonathan. I find that sometimes we use some of these exceptional leaders, like an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs, and look at their inexcusable behaviors or some weaknesses that they have and in order to excuse our own lack of leadership at different levels in organizations. So totally aligned with that. And one of the things that you get into also in that chapter is a challenge that I see with a lot of leaders. The higher up we move in organizations, the bigger our blind spots become rather than shrinking our blind spots. You touch on the Johari's window and have an exercise around it. What is the Johari's window and how can we use it to become more effective leaders?
0: and explore those ordinary everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. Yeah, so I refer to the Jahari window and I do have um, kind of this little insert of just a very simple exercise that we can go through as leaders to try to uncover those blind spots. Uh, and, and perhaps we can even tie this back to um, another proverb that I talk about later on in the book, uh, frog in a well, because it, it, it relates also. Um, but the the main idea here is that you have basically this, this um, quadrant system where you have uh, known to self or unknown to self and known to others or unknown to others. and What we want to try to accomplish when we're working with people is to create as expansive of an open area as possible so that what is known, so in terms of my behavior, my actions, my attitudes, uh, how I view the world, that that's um, known to me. I understand that about myself and that others know that about me. I'm transparent enough and I communicate well enough that other people recognize that in me right? And the more other people see things in me that I don't see, you know, the more problems you have. The more I see things in myself that other people don't see, uh, the more problems you have. And the really dangerous area is when you have things that are unknown to yourself and unknown to others. Um, so you have these, these uh, hidden weaknesses, hidden blind spots that nobody's really aware of, so you can't do anything to even respond to them. So then the question is, well, if you don't know about it, how can you do anything about it? Um, and the answer is, you do everything you can through, through appropriate self-disclosure, through transparency, through feedback loops, and, and getting input from your people to shrink the blind spot. Uh, we're never going to completely get rid of it. Uh, it's part of the human condition that we're, we, you know, we're, we're limited in terms of our perspective. And there's just, we can't know everything. But we can reduce that blind spot. In some leaders, and in my experience, it's it's largely the very ego-driven types of leaders. They tend to have the biggest blind spot um, because they they don't practice self-reflection all that much because they kind of figure like they have it all figured out already. And they tend to end up being surrounded by people, whether it's on purpose or not. They end up being surrounded by sycophants and individuals who are yes men and want to tell them, you know, what they already. They, they want to tell you what they think you want to hear. And so your blind spot grows and you think you're this brilliant person that has the answer to everything because it's constantly reinforced that way. Unbeknownst to you, you're missing all these things constantly because you're just completely unaware of it. That's what we want to avoid. Um, not, it's not completely unavoidable, but we can mitigate it um, just by transparency, communication and feedback loops and things like that.
1: I was actually on the executive team with a brilliant CEO, and he actually encouraged and would reward people to oppose his perspective, and try to reduce his blind spots. It was incredible. Initially, the executive team people didn't know what to make of it. But eventually, they realized, no, he really wanted that and he thrived on it. So it created a very healthy culture. It's absolutely important. Now, you also mentioned uh, chapter six, you talk about leading a growth culture rather than a performance culture. What is that all about?
0: Yeah, I think it's really important for us to, to seek the right goals uh, when we're trying to be successful as individuals or successful as an organization or a team within an organization. And when when we focus on performance uh, and we, we focus on outcomes, um, <laughs> particularly if we're not careful, which despite good intentions. A lot of organizations aren't particularly careful about this. We, we end up selecting the wrong metrics to measure the wrong things that reinforce the wrong behaviors and actually end up undercutting, um, other, other approaches that need to be taken or other areas of performance, uh, or behaviors that need to be consistently done. And we, uh, you know, unbeknownst to ourselves, we end up undercutting our own long-term sustainability as an organization. So I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't, you know, try to have good performance as an organization. But when that's our number one goal, and particularly if we're not clearly identifying the right objectives and the right metrics, you know, to assess whether we're achieving it, um, you know, then it it does cause problems. But having a growth culture is different and it can actually lead to higher performance as well. So the natural byproduct of a growth culture is um, greater innovation, greater levels of performance but the growth culture focuses on the journey not just the output and when we focus on the journey we recognize that there's value in failure um, and it's an iterative learning process so you know oftentimes almost never rather I, I'll, I'll frame it this way almost never will we hit it out of the park with some new innovation right out of the gate right we almost always have to go through A painful iterative learning process where we fall flat on our face over and over and over again. We pick ourselves up, we learn from what we did wrong, we tweak it, we um, refine it, we try again, and we learn and we grow and we develop and our products and services improve and and it drives other positive organizational outcomes. But when you only focus on on the output um, rather than the journey and the process of getting to that output, uh, you you can really discourage the very behaviors that need to occur in order for innovation to happen. Uh, and, and so, again, unbeknownst to yourself, I, I don't think anyone does this intentionally, but you end up um, shooting yourself in the foot and shortchanging your own capacity of your people to do, you know, the collective genius and the, the ability of, of people as you lean on their expertise uh, to be able to drive Uh, creative solutions to, to problems and fill gaps, but we have to make it a safe space for them to fail. You know, we can try to fail forward, uh, fail fast, fall forward. And, and those types of things that's, I think that's important, but I don't know about you. I've been in a lot of organizations where they say they want creativity and innovation. Um, but if you challenge the status quo, uh, if you try to, tweak a process where you try to do something a little bit differently, immediately you get shut down or you get in trouble or, you know, you get punished for, um, for even a minor failure. And that's, that's a a fixed mindset kind of a culture, not a growth mindset. And that's what we want to uh, foster within organizations.
1: And those performance cultures are the ones that get in trouble, whether the Wells Fargo's of the world or Boeing's of the world. Exactly. In that, uh, you do have to be mindful of where you're headed. So having that growth culture helps. Now, in Chapter 13, you had me at Clayton Christensen. I, I, I'm I, a big fan. And that's where you talk about purpose driven career and workplace. Yeah. How would you say organizations and leaders can make their workplaces more purpose-driven?
0: Yeah, well, I think first it starts with us individually. We need to understand ourselves enough and do that that work of of critical self-reflection and mindfulness that we can recognize what motivates us, what drives us. And everyone's different. So, I mean, I've done a lot of research on this. I could talk to you for days about all the various motivators and how they interact with each other and whatnot, the bottom line is everyone's different and there's no one-size-fits-all approach to, to motivation. Um, but what, what we see in the research consistently is that purpose and the ability to make an impact in the world and through your work, that matters to people, that matters to almost everybody. And it, it's one of the, the strongest motivators for most people. And so every, you know, pretty much everyone wants the, the opportunity to do work that's going to matter, that's going to add value not only to their company, but to the broader society. And sometimes it takes us a while, though, to figure that out. Uh, and I think even early, early on in my career, you know, where you have your ambitions and you're going through schooling, you're getting those first jobs, you're trying to rise up in terms of, you know, climbing the rungs and, and getting new opportunities. And you become so career focused that it's very, very easy to get disconnected from your authentic self and your purpose in why you even got into your career in the first place. Um, but if we can tap into that and understand who we are, what drives us, what motivates us, we can better figure out uh, and align our purpose with our potential employer. Or if we start our own company, you know, with, with the culture we create within our own company. Uh, but every organization has different types of cultures. Uh, and, and I'm not just talking about mission statement, value statements, the banners on the wall. Those are nice. And, and I think you know, they're important as long as they, um, as long as you're walking the walk as long, uh, along with talking the talk. Uh, but ultimately, it starts with the individual to know their purpose. Hopefully, then they can align with the organization they choose to affiliate with uh, that has a similar type of purpose. Now, as a leader, if I understand that one of the the greatest drivers of sustained creativity, innovation, and performance is going to help is going to be me helping my people connect their purpose to the institution, the organization's purpose. If I if I recognize that, then what that means is I need to proactively learn about my people. Um, I need to develop connections and relationships that are meaningful, authentic, uh, and, uh, trust-driven, uh, and, and only then will I really start to fully understand, um, what makes each of my people tick. And then I can start to craft, uh, and design opportunities that will more tightly and closely leverage, not only the skill set and the capabilities of each person, but also their passion and and the purpose that they have, and connect it back to what they're doing on a day to day basis. Connect it back to what they're doing uh, as their you know their kind of overarching goal uh, for for their career. Um, in my experience, most organizations don't do that very well. Um, most organizations don't even have a, a particularly uh, particularly clear um, sense of their organization-wide purpose or culture, um, and even fewer have those types of leaders that can truly do that connectivity, uh, the work behind the connectivity to to make sure that they're aligning and and ensuring some really good uh, person-job, person-organization fit in terms of uh, that purpose.
1: And that purpose, Jonathan, has become even more critical since organizations went through both the beginning of the crisis and since for many, uh, whether working virtually or even frontline workers that are not working virtually, connection to purpose at least has been something people have been talking about. Doing it is a different story. So part of what I would love to get your perspectives on, as organizations are facing faster and greater disruption than they've ever faced before, With respect to leadership and your thoughts, what do you think it takes to lead effectively at this time? In addition, obviously your um, insights are relevant for leaders always. What is most critical right now at this pace of disruption?
0: Yeah, and and that's actually how I start the book. In chapter one, I, I briefly lay out the current context, the current landscape. The fact that we, you know, you, you look over the last 50 years of world um, economic business history and how things have shifted and changed, and then we don't have a crystal ball, but we can, we can look at trends and we can kind of make projections and see the likely trajectory of where things are going. And, and so I think we can make some reasonable assumptions about, you know, what the next five, 10, 20 years uh, might look like. Uh, as we move into the future. And with that, it's going to require a different type of skill sets and capabilities. Now, there are some fundamental principles, as you mentioned, the uh, fundamental principles that I think do tend to apply across time and space and context, um, but how we go about implementing those and, and carrying them out and living them, um, I, I think that does need to shift and that does need to change. Um, one of the very interesting things to me is I, I wrote that chapter actually pre-pandemic. And so I'm thinking about things like disruptive technologies, disruptive innovations. I'm thinking about um, geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts on a global scale, Um, all these different drivers that are shifting the nature of work, the nature of professions. Uh, And all of this I think is really important to think about Uh, and organizational leaders really need to carefully consider how they fit into this contextual mix. But I wrote all that before the pandemic hit. And then the pandemic hit um, and all of a sudden we found ourselves thrust into this this new world, this this strange virtual world where everyone's isolating, everyone's at home. Um, So many people are working remotely. And it's not like remote work was new. People had been doing that for a really long time. But to this scale that it was happening and, and the fact that it just happened overnight, um, you know, within a matter of days, we went to uh, you know, nearly a full virtual workforce. Uh, that's incredible. And so what we see is this acceleration towards this shifting nature of work uh, and the future of work. We would have gotten there anyways in another five, 10 years, we would have slowly adapted and adopted technologies Um, but because of all of this, I think there's no going back. Um, the pendulum has swung. We might swing back a little bit once things open back up and the pandemic is, um, controlled and we, the vaccines are out and and people can interact, um, safely. It will swing back a bit, but I don't think it's ever going to swing back all the way to where it was before. Um, and I think at a minimum, most people are going to want a hybrid, type of a work environment, even if they do want to go into the workplace, they're probably only going to want to go in physically two or three days a week. And then, you know, the other days they'll be working from home. And so that means these technologies that we've been learning to utilize, um, they they're here and they're not going anywhere. And they're, we've all got our comfort level with them has grown. Um, and uh, the, the abilities that we we have to interact with each other um ha- have been enhanced, right? We've gotten better at it. Um, Even the technologies themselves have improved quite a bit, even since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, And so we're just doing virtual work better now than we even did 10 months ago. And and I think that's just going to continue. So with that in mind, we still have to think about the continued disruptions and there's still new technologies that are on the horizon um, that will be adopted. What does this mean for leaders? And connecting it back to your main point about purpose, for example, having a purpose-driven organization, connecting an individual's purpose with the organization's purpose and, and driving a really motivating type of work, it's, we're in a new um, world of leaders trying to figure out how to motivate remotely. Uh, and so, whereas before everyone's in the office and you can wander around and you can put in your FaceTime with your people and wander around their cubicles or their office space and have conversations, now, it's not like we can't have those conversations. They're just not going to happen as organically um, as they happened before. So we have to be more proactive um, we, and, and we have to just make a concerted effort at being consistent and making sure that we ha- we're having those types of conversations so that we can still develop trust. We can still um, develop authentic relationships with our people where they're going to, going to feel um, like they can... Confide in us and share their authentic self, so we know what their purpose is, and we can help them connect to it. I also think, you know, the the banners, the the motivational posters, the all of that all that kind of physical stuff that you often would see in the workplace, it doesn't kind of matter anymore, right? If you're just at home, all that collateral um, physical stuff, um, it it just doesn't even matter or resonate anymore, and so. Uh, I'm not sure how really effective it was before anyways, but let's just assume it, it had some efficacy. Now it really doesn't have much of any efficacy. And so, so um, it has to be more relationship driven. It has to be more uh, conversational and uh, an ongoing attention to it so that we can Im- continue to embed it throughout our culture, throughout our processes, such as, you know, our, our um, performance review processes, our feedback and mentoring career development, all that kind of stuff.
1: We are forced to focus more on the core elements rather than the surface elements, which does make it really tough, Jonathan. Now, your book is fabulous, Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership. In addition to your book, um, what other leadership books or resources do you find yourself recommending to leaders as they want to improve their own leadership skills?
0: There, I mean, there's so many, uh, we, we don't have, a uh, lack of, of resources, which sometimes does make it difficult though, to sift through, right. And try to figure out what's worth our time and attention. Uh, I love Harvard business review. I'm, uh, reading those articles all the time, um, both for kind of cutting edge, uh, trends. Um, but also just, you know, good thought pieces that, that, force me to maybe challenge my assumptions um, think people like Clayton Christensen I, I was really sad when he passed away it's almost been a year now it was the end of January 2020 uh, when he passed away and he even though we never met he, you know he's a personal hero of mine um, I just love his his books uh, all of them are great um, other individuals like Dave Ulrich who um, I have been fortunate enough to to meet on a number of occasions and and interact with on a number of occasions. Um, he, he, he puts out great work, um, both in terms of shorter articles that are, you know, anyone can connect with him on LinkedIn and he's constantly putting out stuff, but also he puts out like a book a year and, and they're almost always fantastic. So, uh, you know, there's just so many, uh, great resources. I reference a whole bunch in my book. Um, even though it's not a research book, uh, it's not an academic book. I do, Uh, have um, citations, and I do uh, reference different sources that I think are particularly important. Uh, I think of, you know, for example, we talked about growth culture, growth mindset, Carol Dweck, and her book, I think it's just so foundational, that everyone should read that book. Um, uh, The Why of Work by Cynic. Uh, I mean, there's just um, so many great works that are out there. And uh, fortunately great podcasts as well between audiobooks and podcasts, even if you're not like a, someone who can sit down and read for, uh, extended periods of time, uh, you know, pop, pop those in and, and listen and get your fill. Cause I, I think uh, you deserve it. And, um, there's, there's so much great stuff out there.
1: Those are, those are great recommendations. And I couldn't agree with you more on podcasts. I am a big fan of Human Capital Innovations podcast. As I said, I'm binging on it. Uh, great solo episodes, great interview episodes. In addition, obviously, to your book and to your podcast, how would you recommend for the audience to connect with you or follow you, Jonathan?
0: Yeah, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, just look up Jonathan Westover on LinkedIn. I'll pop right up. Uh, I, I'm fortunate enough to have a a name that's somewhat unique. And so uh, there's not a lot of competition there. Uh, If you just search for me on LinkedIn, I'll I'll pop up and uh, I would love to connect with you. Um, And that will then, that's a good hub point that can connect, connect you out to a lot of different things that I'm involved with. Uh, You can also find me on my, uh, my consulting website, Human Capital Innovations is the name of the company. The URL is innovativehumancapital.com where you can find podcast you can find um the human capital leadership magazine we do a lot of uh, research briefs and webinars and a lot of that kind of stuff um that's also there and it's all free uh, resources so would encourage you to to leverage that um the podcast were i don't know something like 340 episodes or so in um so there's a huge back catalog if you go on to um the human capital innovations website and click on the podcast tab. There's even a, an area where you can, um, look at episodes by topic. So if you're interested in a particular topic, you know, that, cause it's all scattered right throughout the 12 seasons, um, all the, the 340 or whatever episodes, um, but you can hone in on particular topics and, and listen in to some great interviews and, and other things like that. Um, the book is available all major retailers. Uh, Amazon's probably the easiest place. So if you just look up the alchemy of truly remarkable leadership on amazon.com, you'll uh, find that right away. It's available in, uh, uh, ebook, uh, on, uh, Kindle it's paperback and also, um, the audiobook is available as well. So I, I definitely appreciate, um, any, uh, support that anyone can provide. Uh, I hope that you will find the book to be, be valuable. Uh, it certainly was a lot of fun writing and I've been, uh, pleased with how it's been received and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it with you here today.
1: Yeah, it, it truly is purpose driven. And that's part of what I really appreciate about it, uh, Jonathan. And, uh, uh, in closing, I wanted to actually read a quote toward the end of your book, uh, uh from Uh, Aniel Sam Chisholm, you uh, quote him as saying, uh, could anything be better than this? Waking up every day knowing that lots of people are smiling because you chose to impact lives, making the world a better place. Jonathan Westover, you are making the world a better place. Thank you for joining us on the Partnering Leadership Podcast.
0: Thank you, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.